you would, take your Bible and open to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. We've been talking over the last several weeks as we make this journey through the book of Hebrews. And I guess I should say as I get started, if you're a guest of ours, my name is Owen and I'm one of the pastors here at the church as well. And we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. The end of chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews is about our worship and our devotion to the Lord. And so we talked about what it means to worship God, what it means to be devoted to Him. And then in chapter 13, you take this vertical worship and devotion, and how do we show that worship? We show it by how we love one another. And so we see in chapter 13 what it looks like to love one another. And this morning, from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, we're going to see that we worship God and we love one another by valuing marriage, and by pursuing sexual purity. And from the very beginning, when you hear marriage and you hear sexual purity, I know that that topic in a sermon can raise all kind of emotions. Guilt, shame, maybe from yesterday, maybe from 30 years ago. Uh, Anger or or resentment, like why are we talking about this in church? What are we doing? I, I came into this room and I've got all kinds of problems and that's not what I'm dealing with. What? What does God's word have to say to me? Stick with us because it doesn't matter what your circumstance, it doesn't matter what your struggle, it doesn't matter what you're going through, the grace of God will see this morning that every one of us needs that. But when you think about these topics of sexual purity and marriage, it's easy to deflect. You could say, yeah, go preacher, speak to the students, the teenagers down here, talk talk to them about this. Or or, yeah, I know what he's really talking about. I I know what situation he's dealing with. If I'm preaching to anybody this morning, it's to myself. I, I'm way more worried about the big log sticking out of my own eye than I am the speck in your eye. Like, I, I stand before you here, middle-aged husband, dad, pastor, like, know the sexual temptations, know the weight of this from a spiritual standpoint. I need God's Word. We need God's Word together. We need His grace. And so we're going to approach these subjects this morning knowing how much we need the Lord. Just this last week, a worship pastor at a large, well-known church in Texas was fired, dismissed from his position because a series of sexual relationships, text messages, relationships that have been going on for years, was brought to light. And the, the weight of that, the pain, the impact that that has, and, and Jaron sent out an email to our staff just saying, guys, we've got to keep watch. We have to keep watch. Because in the church, we need to value marriages. We need to pursue sexual purity together. And we're going to seek to do that. And from the very beginning this morning, I want you to know that God is holy and just. That there is no messing around with these subjects. And at the same time, God is so gracious and he is so merciful. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love. That he is a God who is able to redeem and restore you, that he is a God who strengthens us and comforts us. He's a God of healing and hope. And so this morning from the very beginning, as we deal with these hard topics, we're going to remember who God is and what it looks like for him to work in our lives and to work in our families and and to work in our churches. And at the very end of the sermon, the way we're going to wrap this up is we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And when you're taking the Lord's Supper, that is serious business. Because you are coming before the Lord saying, you are my hope. I come before you in repentance. 
I come before you because my only hope is what Jesus has done for me in my place. And when we get to the end of the service, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, but you want to know his grace, or you're here this morning and you're struggling and you say, you know what, I probably don't need to take the Lord's Supper right now, but I do need someone to pray for me. We're going to have a prayer team available to love you and to speak to you about the gospel and to pray for you and encourage you during that time. So I just want you to know kind of where we're headed, what we're talking about this morning. Let's get into God's word together this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 28. Let's kind of read our way again into chapter 13 so you get the idea of what's going on here. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. And then verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Let's pray together as we begin. God, this is a a weighty topic. And and I know there'd be people in the room that say, yeah, it's probably not the topic I was thinking or wanting to hear this morning. But God, this is your word for us in this moment as a church, as individuals. And God, we want our hearts to be soft, to be able to receive your word. God, would you bring healing and hope to people's lives this morning? Would you show us what it looks like to love one another by valuing marriage and pursuing sexual purity? God, we trust your word. We trust the power of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Tuesday of this week, February 20th, um, I'll turn 42 years old on Tuesday. And as you start to work your way up in age, there's kind of a fun, scary game that you can play with your age where, you know, you back up, so hey, back up 42 years to 1982, and then you take however many years that is, and you back it up again from your birth year, so, you know, you back up from 2024 to 1982, and then you back up another 40 years, you're 1940. Oh, wow, like that'll get your attention in a hurry, so uh, I'm as many years from my birth year as my birth year was from the very first full year of World War II. You're like, oh, well, that brings things into perspective. Really what that just means is you're getting old. Like, that's the reason you play that game. Be careful with that game. It could cause some depression or unexpected, you know, perspective in life. Like, there's a lot of weight to play in that game, but you think about that. So being born in 1982, what that really means is I know the 90s well. Like, that's really what it comes back. Like, for, for all the weirdness of life, like, I lived through the 1990s and know the 1990s well, and there's a couple of things that have come out lately talking about the 90s. The 90s, for all their weirdness, were the emergence of the WWJD bracelets. Anybody wear a WWJD bracelet back in the day? Yeah, I have those. Some, they're even coming back around. All these things that come back around that look new, and you're like, nah, that's been around for a while. So uh, those WWJD bracelets, also in the 90s, you might remember something called True Love Waits. Uh, True Love Waits was this campaign where junior high and high school students were asked to sign these pledge cards that they would abstain from sex until they were married. And hundreds of thousands of these cards were signed, and then they were laid out in different places, one year in Washington, D.C., another year in Atlanta. And so all these things came out. And Amanda was talking to me uh, 
this last week that in her high school AP English class at UConn, uh, she wrote her high school AP English persuasive essay on true love waits, the idea of waiting until marriage for, uh, for sex. And her teacher wrote back, good essay, maybe you should be a little more open-minded. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Wow, what does it look like to be in that type of, type of situation? Here's the question. If you were asked to make a case for sexual purity, if you were asked to make a case for the value of marriage, what would it look like to do that? I think Hebrews 13.4 is a really good place to begin. Look again at that verse. Like, this is our core verse. Then we're going to peel back the onion and go a lot of different directions. But this is the core idea. Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Okay, the way this verse is put together is you have essentially two parallel ideas Two descriptions of what the Christian life should look like, Christian love and worship should look like, and then a reason, a rationale that's given underneath it. So that first idea, let marriage be held in honor among all, that word for marriage is talking about the institution of marriage. So let marriage, this idea that God has given us, that he's designed, that he's put before us, this needs to be held in honor, meaning it matters, we value it. We, we see the importance of it. And it's to be honored among all. Sometimes the greatest champions for marriage in a church can be those who are single. And the greatest champions for singles in the church should be those who are married. That we understand the importance, the value of marriage. And this is not for married people or single people. This is for everyone in Christ saying as we live as the people of God, we value marriage. This is important to us. How do we value marriage? One of the easiest ways is just how you talk about marriage around other people, how you talk about your spouse. It's so easy to get in a group of people, and man, guys are the worst at this, and I have been guilty, embarrassingly so I've been guilty of this. You get around people, and they're talking negatively about their spouse, or marriage is so hard, or marriage is the worst, and then you get, you feel compelled just to join in. Man, that is not the way of the people of God. We value marriage. We hold marriage as honorable, as a good gift from God. And so the way we talk about marriage, whether you are single or married, it matters to the message of the gospel, to the message of Jesus. We want to talk about marriage in that way. We want to invest in marriages. We're going to do that tonight with our marriage night. We want to invest in marriages. These matter. Friends, your marriage is not secondary to your kids. Your marriage is not secondary to your job. Your marriage is a gift from God, a covenant you made before him. Invest in your marriage. Don't get along with just trying to survive or trying to live together. We want our marriages to be valuable, to be held in honor before the Lord. And let me just say this. I say this especially to younger couples in the room. When you start to face challenges, things start to go sideways, you're facing these struggles, can I just beg you to reach out for help earlier than you think you should? Because what I've faced in pastoral ministry and counseling over the years is so many times, and and I say this carefully because you may be in this situation, but so many times people reach out to us for help with their marriage, and so many more things could have been done if we could have had that conversation five years ago or ten years ago. So many times people reach out, and, and God's grace is sufficient, and he's able to do amazing things, but if you're here and you're new in your marriage, don't let those things go sideways. Don't, don't put up with things where you need to reach out to people and say, we need help. 
We need some counseling and encouragement because what happens in marriages so often, there's these patterns that develop where often, early in marriage, the husband, often the husband, but not always, is just a doofus. Like he just doesn't, he doesn't invest in the marriage and he's not sacrificial and he just, he's just emotionally distant. He has no idea what's going on. And somewhere along the way, the wife's heart begins to grow hard in that situation. And then the husband reaches a point where he's like, oh, my marriage does matter, and I do need to get my relationship right with God, and it begins to come along. And the challenge is that wife's heart or that other spouse's heart has become hard and bitter, and there's contempt in the marriage, and we have to value marriages. We have to honor them. We have to be able to say, I need help. I need encouragement. We need people. This week's podcast uh, for Emmaus, our Proclaim and Display podcast, Bob and Gayla Bynum, they share about their marriage on that podcast and do such a good job talking about, we just had to sit down together and say, we've got to figure out how to work this out. We've got to figure out what it looks like for God's grace to come into our lives. We want to value marriages. We want to build up and hold these marriages in honor. And so whatever that might look like in your situation, I'm just saying we need to do that. One of the main ways, one of the ways that we can value marriage comes in that second phrase, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, marriage bed there is a euphemism for sex. I should probably just go ahead and say it quickly because I'm going to say it several times during the service and we all chuckle because we're in eighth grade boys on the inside. So it's just kind of how it is. But uh, so let the marriage bed, marriage bed there is not the institution of marriage. Marriage bed is the activity of sex. It is sexual intimacy. That's what it's being talked about here. And it's used with this adjective undefiled undefiled is a word that's usually associated with worship or the temple and yet that's being tied back here to the marriage bed to to sexual activity that when we think about God's lordship he's boss of our lives when we think about his involvement in our lives we think about that on Sunday morning but God is lord of every area of your life including or especially sexuality and we cannot allow anything impure anything associated with sin to be brought either into the marriage or anything associated with sex outside of marriage. And you're like, okay, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, the two words are right there, sexually immoral and adulterous. The author tells us what he's talking about here. This idea of adultery is the breaking of the marriage covenant. So this would be pursuit of sexual intimacy or a sexual relationship while you're married. Sexually immoral this is a word that's used in the New Testament, and the word is porneia. You hear our word pornography, the word porneia, and it is all sexual sin, not just adultery, but any type of sexual intimacy or sexual relationship outside the context of marriage. Students, here's where this is so helpful, and not just students, but let's just take married couples as well. The idea, the question, how far is too far? Man, who in dating did not find yourself asking that question at times? That we ask this question, how far is too far? What does it really mean to be sexually immoral? What does that look like? We don't get exact definitions, but the way that these words are set up make very clear how far is too far? Anything that mimics the type of sexual intimacy that would happen in marriage, anything involving parts of the body associated with sex, and any type of words or pictures designed to lead us to sex, anything that would engage the heart or the mind 
falls into sexual immorality, falls outside the bounds of what God's design is, which means text messages. Be so careful with text messages. And students, I say this directly to you, do not send pictures of yourself, sexually explicit pictures, and if you receive those, reach out to someone because there are legal ramifications. Like, we, we cannot do that. Like, the idea that we would use a text message, we would use imagery to lead us towards sex in a way that doesn't honor the Lord, that's where we draw those lines. And let's just be honest here, when it comes to drawing these kind of lines about what is sexually immoral and what is not, you have to pre-decide. I love that phrase from Craig Rochelle, the idea of pre-deciding, because if you wait until you're tired or you wait until you're stressed or frustrated with your spouse or the relationship is progressing, if you wait until that point to define sexual immorality, it's probably going to be too late. Because in that moment, you're not thinking define sexual immorality. Your body is just taking over. And so you pre-decide to say, this is what it looks like to honor the Lord with my body. This is what it looks like in our marriage. In our marriage, we will not do this. We will not allow this. We're going to say, this is what it looks like to honor the Lord. And pre-deciding is good, but we need a theological foundation. We need a foundation under this to say, this is what it looks like to do this on the basis of God's word. So here's what I want to do this morning. If you like to take notes, if you fall in the note-taking category, and I know many of you do, it kind of helps you follow along with what's going to happen. There's kind of two big headings, why, W-H-Y, and how, H-O-W. So kind of two big headings. Underneath why, we'll go one, two, three. Underneath how, we'll go one, two, three. What we're trying to determine is why does this matter and then how do I live this out? So let's start with why does this matter? Why does it matter? Why, why do preachers get so up in arms talking about marriage and sex? Like why is it such a big deal? Well, reason number one is that God judges the sexually immoral. We see that in Hebrews chapter 13, 4, but then you have verses like 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those practicing homosexuality. Now you might say, wait, wait, isn't there a verse 10 that comes after this that talks about thievery and being greedy and speaking badly about people? Yes, there absolutely is a verse 10. But there's also a verse 9, and that's what we're talking about this morning, because our words from Hebrews 13, 4, for sexual immorality and adultery, those same words are used here in 1 Corinthians 6, or, uh, 6, 9. This idea that God will judge those who are sexually immoral and adulterous. So you're saying that anybody who commits, commits a sexual sin won't go he to heaven? Like, is that, is that what you're saying? No, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. The way this verse is set up is these words describe someone who this is their life. They are living in open rebellion to the Lord. The only type of sorrow they might experience about sexual sin would just be, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry it caused trouble in my life. There's no deep repentance. There's no confession of sin. These things begin to define their life, and you reach this dangerous point where you begin to say, I don't care what my parents say. I don't care what the pastor says. I don't care what my friends say. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And your heart grows hard, and you become bitter against the Lord, and you just begin to live in rebellion to God. And you get to this point, and notice the key. Here's the key. God judges, not us. <laughs> He is the one 
who knows a person's heart, not us. He judges. But that's not like good news, that's hard news. Because God judges. He takes seriously things like sexual immorality. And his judgment is wise and perfect and holy. And let's just be clear. If there's no eternity, if there's no life after this, man, live however you want. <laughs> like, just, just, just go for it. Like, if there's no life after this, no eternity, like, God's judgment is on the basis that he is creator, he is judge, he is savior, and he is God for all of eternity. And so we see here this weight of this idea that, that God judges sexual immorality. Number two, why does this matter? It matters because sexual sin impacts others. Have you ever heard someone say, who does it hurt? Like, what does it matter if me and my boyfriend or girlfriend do something together? What does it matter what I do when I'm by myself? Who, who is really hurt if someone is just doing whatever they want to sexually? It shouldn't bother you people at church. It shouldn't bother you. Why, who does it hurt? Well, there's an interesting quote that I ran into. Don't worry about writing it all down. If you want the quote, it's just kind of illustration. I'll send it to you later. But here's an interesting quote. Here's the quote. Full of sin, our age has defiled first the marriage bed, then our children and our homes, and the stream of disaster has overflowed to both people and nation. You're like, huh, I wonder when that was written. Maybe that was a Focus on the Family article from last year. Guess when that was written? Oh, it's not up there. My reveal was not good. Maybe the slide stuck. You guys show that, that quote? Oh, there's the quote. Okay, go to the next slide. When was it written? 23 BC. You think sexual immorality started in the 90s <laughs> or uh, in the 60s or the 20s? No, it started... 23 B.C., this comment is being met. Why does sexual immorality matter? Because it hurts others. Sexual sin, sexual immorality can destroy a community. Sexual immorality hurts families, hurts friendships, hurts churches. It overflows into our relationships, the way we live the rest of our lives. And remember, the author he is trying to get people to love one another. He's trying to bring their lives together in love. And when people are living in sexually immoral ways, it breaks down the trust in a church. It breaks down the trust among friends. Your sexual sin might feel like it's just yours, but it impacts people around you, and it will impact your future in ways that are hard to explain in the moment. Number three, number three. Why does this matter? It matters because marriage and connected to that, sexuality, are pictures of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. When we're talking about marriage, this idea of sacrificial love for someone, this idea of faithful, sacrificial unity among a couple, that marriage... That expression of sexuality is a picture of the gospel, which means when adultery comes in or sexual sin comes in or we devalue marriage, it impacts our witness to the world. And we live in a world that is so confused sexually. 
that is so confused about the idea of marriage, and there's all this debate and all this chaos, and as the people of God, we have a chance to communicate the gospel to people through the way we handle marriage, through the way we address our sexuality. Throughout history, throughout history, Christians have been characterized by the integrity of their sexual ethics. And friends, we have the opportunity to do that now. We have a chance to show people a different way, to show people the good news of Jesus. The question is, how do you do that? How do you value marriage? How do you pursue sexual purity? So underneath why, we just dealt with why, God judges that sexual sin impacts others, that marriage is the picture of the gospel, so that's why it matters. Underneath how, how do we do this? Well, number one, it begins with how we view God. If you want to value marriage and you want to pursue sexual purity, it begins with how we view God. When you think about God, when you think about his design for marriage, his design for sexuality, do you see that as good and wise, that, that God's plan for his world, God's plan for his people, his plan is good and wise. He has set out what is right for us. Or, Genesis chapter 3, do you hear the devil saying, did God really say that? Come on now. Did God really say that's what marriage should look like? The idea that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh, like that's so outdated, that's so old, God's holding out on you. He's not good. He's trying to keep you away from what would be really good. Be careful there, what you think about God, because how you think about God's plan for marriage and sexuality will have a lot to do with how you live that out in your life. And we are saying from the very beginning that God's plan is good. And this is not just Genesis 2. Jesus repeats the same idea. Paul repeats the same idea in the New Testament. So it's not just an Old Testament idea. It's carried forward by Jesus and Paul into the New Testament. And what this allows for, and man, I think this is a helpful idea that um, someone introduced to me a few, few weeks ago. But it's this idea that when we think about sexuality, marriage is the cornerstone of sexuality. It's not the capstone, okay? So let me, let's think through this for a second. I'm not saying that marriage is the cornerstone of your life, okay? Jesus is the cornerstone of your life. Married, single, it doesn't matter. But if you're talking about your sexuality, marriage is supposed to be the foundation for your sexual life, sexual intimacy, not the capstone to that. Because we live in a world that says, be sexually active, live together, try this out, and if it goes well, add marriage on the top. And God's message says, put marriage at the foundation, because when you make that kind of sacrificial commitment to one another, when you establish that covenant foundation, then sexual intimacy is added on top of that foundation of marriage, not the other way around. Because what people begin to say is, well, how would I know that I'm compatible with someone unless we test this out beforehand, unless we have a way to live together and see if this is going to work, how do I know that I'm compatible? Can I just say, and I, I, I am not being crude at all, but can I just say that if you're worried about being compatible with someone in marriage, it begins with your character, it begins with a sacrificial commitment to someone, and it begins with conflict resolution. If you have strong character and you're committed to someone, 
and you develop some conflict resolution skills, that's going to help a lot with sexual compatibility. It's not testing this out beforehand, and then we'll add marriage on later. God's plan, God's design, is that marriage is the foundation for then expressing our sexuality and love and sacrifice and commitment to one another. Now, here's the question. What happens when that goes sideways? Well, we know from our three circles diagram that when we go away from God's design, it leads to the effects of sin and brokenness. And when you think about what those effects, those results and consequences of sexual sin, what that looks like, Romans chapter 1 is the go-to place in the Bible for this. We're not going to take time to read all of that, but if you need a reference point to say what does it look like when sin, especially sexual sin, begins to express itself, Romans chapter 1 is there. You go to the Old Testament, and man, these stories in the Old Testament about sexual sin— they don't make it in the kids' Bibles, okay, because uh, those, th- there is some PG-13 rated R material in the Old Testament when you start to think about the dark underbelly of sexual sin. We see it even in our world, just science and sociology and studies that are coming out to say consent culture is not all it was cracked up to be, and hookup culture is, is dangerous for the chemistry of your brain and your ability to relate to one another. All these things begin to come out because we see the brokenness that comes from sexual sin. And at this point, I need you to hear me out as a pastor, okay? Because you can hear that, and you can say, you don't know what happened to me. You you don't know what I've been through. Because a lot of the brokenness that we deal with in our lives was not necessarily things that we might have done, but stuff that was done to us. And all I can tell you at that point is God's grace and love meets you in that moment, And there's the gifts of counseling and friendships and patience and God's love that begins to lead you forward. Because when you hear brokenness, I want you to hear that I am not saying that you are responsible for all of those things that have happened to you. That is not the case at all. Because so many times people are hurt sexually because of things that were done to them, often when they were small children. And it is gut-wrenching and it makes us angry and it causes all those emotions of justice to come up within us. And so I want you to hear from me as a pastor right now. If you're in that situation, we want to love you and care for you and provide a pathway forward only by God's grace. And there's another piece of this. When you hear this idea of the effects of of sexual sin and the brokenness that comes from that, what we have to be careful of is we've got to go back and talk for a second about the 1990s purity culture movement that began with True Love Waits. There were some good things that came out of purity culture, but there were some bad things that came out of that purity culture as well. And we're starting to see some of those things that are, that are emerging now where, where girls were, were almost uh, forced to shoulder a lot of the responsibility for what that would look like in a relationship and literally shoulder it like if they exposed their shoulders or something was going on with their dress. It was almost like the role of men in purity culture, very little was expected and a lot was overlooked from men. And girls were given this huge weight in purity culture, and all this legalism and rules were put on there, and it caused a lot of trauma for a lot of ladies, even driving people away from the faith because of what they experienced in those situations. One extreme is this religious legalism. The other extreme is this live your truth, do whatever you want, it doesn't matter. God's answer to that is so much better. What's God's answer to that? Repent and believe the gospel. You can ask teenagers to sign a card. 
You can ask them to make a commitment. You can make a commitment in your life. But at the end of the day, it's not our willpower that makes the difference. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. That is where our hope is found. Because we can say right here, such were some of you. Such were some of you. We look at our lives. Every one of us can look at our lives and see the reality of sin. That there have been times we've lived in rebellion to God. There have been times we lived for our own purposes, our own selfishness. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Sexual sin has consequences. All sin has consequences. We realize that. But your life is not defined or controlled, and your future is not determined by what you've done in the past. Your life is defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is where you find hope, that you turn to him and know that those who are in Christ are a new creation, that you have been redeemed, that you have been restored, that God is doing a new thing in your life, and there is hope, and there is healing. And so I don't know what your story looks like sexually. I don't know what your story looks like of what things that have happened to you, but I want you to know that Jesus died for you, that he rose again, and that he rules over all things, and his grace is sufficient for your life. We have to receive that. We have to accept that good news. And when we accept that good news, when we experience the gospel, what it does, it leads us to recover and live out God's design for our life. So we believe that God's design is good. God, your plan for marriage, your plan for sexuality is right. And man, when we go away from that, it leads to brokenness, and it leads to death and the consequences of sin, and our hope is not getting our life together, our hope is not signing our card, our hope is not making a commitment, our hope is not trying to figure it out. Our hope is the gospel. We experience the gospel, and then that leads us to live out God's design for our life. How do we do that? We have Jesus' example, his teaching. Friends, if you are in here and you're single, don't ever let someone say that in some way your life is incomplete without marriage, without sexuality. Jesus, the one who was fully God, became fully human, lived the most complete human life in history, was never married, never experienced sexual intimacy, sexual activity, and his life was complete, and your life is too. Your life has incredible value in the Lord. And so we follow the example of Jesus. We see his teaching. We have the power of the Holy Spirit within us, teaching us to have wisdom, to set good guidelines, but also the Holy Spirit who just works inside of us to remind us that those strong hormonal temptation desires those are not our deepest desires. Our deepest desires is to honor the Lord. And we have the Holy Spirit at work in us who is greater than the one who is in the world. So we trust in his power. And here's the beauty of it. When we see God in that way, it leads to the second how. And the second how for sexual purity in marriage has to do with how we view others. So how we view God is God's plan is good and right and he brings salvation and he shows us how to live and then he gives us the gift of the church. Because it, how we view others, if we get this correct, it will help us to be faithful in our lives sexually. It'll be helpful to be faithful in our life when it comes to marriage. Uh-oh, sorry, it's at the bottom there. It says 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. 
how do we view others? Every person that you interact with and see was made in the image of God, and if they are in Christ, they are part of your family. You view them as part of the family of God, which means we never view another person simply as an object or an option. We never look at another person and we never use them. Love, we love others because we want to serve them, because we seek what is their best. I, I helped write um, some baseball team devotions this last year. And one of the things we talked about in those baseball team devotions is helping these guys change the culture in baseball when it comes to how you speak about women and how you treat women. Baseball players, softball players, band members, people in your workplace. When we view people, we view them as created in the image of God, as those for whom Jesus has died. Their life has value. We will never use them or speak badly of them or take advantage of them. They're not an object or an option. They're a child of God. And we treat them in that way. We see them in that way. And when we look to others, we need people who encourage us in that. We'll look to others and they'll say, man, this is hard. Like, I, I know this is hard. Like, I, I know the intensity of this, but I'm with you and I care for you. And you need people in your life who will challenge you, who will caution you saying, don't go down that road. I've been down that road. I know where that road leads. I'm encouraging you to know that Jesus is worth it. Stay faithful to him. Follow him. Seek after him. Man, this is the gift of older men and women in your life. This is the gift of having someone who can be an example to you, who can encourage you, who can show you the way forward, having those people in your life that you can turn to. How do we, how do we view others? How do we value them in this way? Again, let me just say it again. Affirm and celebrate singleness. When you see someone who is single, your first thought is not, man, they're missing out. Your first thought is, man, God's at work in their life. They are valuable, and we are going to love them. We're going to include them, and they are part of what God's doing. You value people in that situation. Secondly, avoid pornography like the plague. Avoid it. It is rampant. It's in our phones. It's everywhere we look. Pornography objectifies people. At the end of the day, that's exactly what's happening. And we are saying that in Christ, we want nothing to do that. We will avoid that like the plague. Flee sexual immorality. Be careful for text messages. Be careful on social media rekindling old flames, trying to live in a way to entice others. Uh, students, the whole thirst pick thing, ugh, do away with that. Like that's absolutely, do not need that. It's not a part of the people of God. This idea that I would live to try to entice somebody, that I would live in such a way that I want them to look at me. We view people in such a way that we value them. We want to encourage others to know and follow Jesus. Number three, how we view God how we view others, number three, how we view ourselves, how we view self. First Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were redeemed. You were restored. So glorify God in your body. Amanda brought up a really good point to me earlier this week. We're going we're gonna to talk about one piece of how we view ourselves. She brought up a really good point. When it comes to the topic of sexual purity, probably the most dangerous thing you could say is, ah, that's not a problem for me. I'm not going to struggle with that. Like, I'm above that. I don't really have to worry about that. 
I cannot imagine a more dangerous position to be in, to have a prideful view of somehow I'm above that and that's not going to be a problem for me. Friends, keep watch lest you fall. Keep watch in this area. We must be vigilant. We must help one another in this area. But here's the other side of how we view ourselves. Sexual sin can create some of the deepest shame in a person's life. And when things have happened to you or you've participated in things you shouldn't have participated in, what happens is the enemy begins to tell you that you are unworthy, that your life doesn't matter, that you won't be able to do anything in the future, that somehow you have messed up and everything has been determined and colored by what you did in the past. And that is not true. That is not true in Christ. That you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that God's Spirit lives in you in such a way that you are able to be redeemed. Your body has been redeemed. Your soul has been redeemed. One day all things will be made new, and in this life you've been restored to live for the Lord. And if you've done things in the past that you are shameful of, that you wish would have never happened, God is able to restore and strengthen and establish you, and he can work through you to minister to others, to care for others, to be a friend and an example and encouragement to these students. We experience God's grace in our life so we can turn around and we can share that and experience that with others around us. Why does this matter? God judges sexual sin. It hurts other people, and it hurts our witness in the world. So what are we going to do as God's people? We're going to look to him as the one who designed marriage. His design is good. His design for sexuality, his plan is good. We're going to look to one another and we're going to encourage each other. And when we think about our own lives, we're not going to be determined by what happened in the past. Our hope is in Jesus. And the only way that I could think of that we could really wrap all that up is to take the Lord's Supper together this morning at the end. But here's my word to you, okay? Scripture is very clear that when we come to the Lord's Supper like this, we come as those who are in Christ. Your faith is in Jesus. You come as one who has been saved. And you come repentant. The Lord's Supper is not something you do just because you showed up to church on that Sunday. And it's definitely not something you do with a rebellious spirit, with a hard heart, with relationships that are opposed to the way of Jesus. And so as we come to this, we come to this reflecting on our lives right now. What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your life? So here's the opportunity that we have here at the end. I'm going to lead us in a time of reflective prayer, and then we're going to prepare to come to these tables that are around to take the Lord's Supper. If you're here this morning, and you've never trusted in Jesus for a salvation, you're, you're not a Christian, but you want to talk to somebody about that, at both of the back side doors, we have prayer team people available for you. If you're here this morning and you feel overwhelmed by sexual sin, or maybe it's something completely different going on in your life, and you say, I can't take the Lord's Supper right now, but I need someone to talk to, I need someone to pray with me, these people are going to be avail available for you. I want you to take advantage of that, whatever the Lord's doing in your life, okay? Let's pray together at this time, and then we're going to respond by taking the Lord's Supper. Father, I know um, when we start talking about this topic of marriage and sexuality from the Bible, there's so many, so many factors involved, so many things going on in our lives, in our world, so many things involved in Scripture.
And at the end of the day, it simply comes back to, do we trust you, your design, your ways in the world? Do we trust that you are good and wise and holy? And when we reflect on our lives and we, and we see the times we rebel against you, we see sin in our lives, maybe sexually, maybe in other ways, God, help us to remember that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are here this morning, I pray that right now, before the Lord, that you would confess your sins, that you would call out to him knowing that he is able to forgive find your heart, heart just feels hard, you feel confused about this, you feel angry or resentful about God's plan, what he's done, I pray that you'd reach out and talk to somebody. I'd love to talk to you later about this, but right now, right now, we come to the Lord's Supper, not out of ritual, we come as those who acknowledge our only hope is in Jesus that he gave his body, his blood for us. Would you reflect on your life right now? Is your life characterized by repentance? By hope in Jesus, remembering what he has done and remembering the hope you have in the future. God, thank you. Thank you for the scripture. Thank you for the power of the gospel. And we, as your people, respond right now asking that you would remind us of that grace, remind us of that forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.